Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Greenwashed. You're with me, Jaspreet, and joining me now is Jill. And we are again going to take a deep dive into the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And we are up to this time around goal number five, which is achieve gender equality and empower all women and girls. But hey, welcome, Jill. Hi, Jaspreet. How are you? Hanging in there, mate. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. It's a little bit chilly down in the south at the moment. We've had some beautiful days, though. Hey, um, There's no global boiling? Uh, no, no, not yet. We're not boiling in our own sweat yet, like an egg, but, you know, I'm sure it will come. Um, SDG 5 is probably one of the most heartbreaking of, of all the of all the 17 sustainable development goals. It, it does my head in going through um, going through this, so you you can rock it off and it start. sounds so good in practice, Jill. SDG five, you know, women's equality. When they begin from it, it says, "I mean, I'm looking again, uh, listeners, at the People's Report, which is a report on how well we are doing on the SDGs. You can find this on www.sdg.org.nz." But otherwise, just Google People's Report, SDGNZ, there it comes. SDG 5 says, after 125 years, you know, of New Zealand getting, being the first country to get women the vote, we have a historically high number of women in parliament, which is led by, or should I say was led by, our third women prime minister, the governor general, chief justice are all women, yet in 2018, the UN committee on elimination of all forms of discrimination against women has made over 60 recommendations to the New Zealand government reminding us of how much more needs to be done to achieve genuine gender equality and equity. And yeah, are we that bad that we need 60 recommendations, Jill? <laughs> well, no, I, I don't think we're bad at all. And I think most of these you know, these recommendations um, are are just just rubbish because you you can't make all people perform exactly the same way um, or think the same way or be tolerant the same way. So I'll just flick back to my little, I love this, I've, I've got a series of these goals. So goal five is to achieve um, gender equality and empower all women and girls. And then the translation of that, and this is, this is the meaning behind everything, um, is to promote the LGBTQ and feminist agendas, marginalise families, heterosexuality, men and boys. And and I tend to, to go very much with the translation. Um, well, growing up in New Zealand as a woman, women's rights, you know, I you have a more on a handle of these things. I'll, I'll go back to India in a bit with my experience, but growing up as a woman, did you face any significant barriers? And, you know, I'm just sticking to the goal per se on face value, women's equality. What did you face um, barriers? I grew up in the, in the, in the days of girls can do anything. So that was in the seventies. And I'm sure a lot of, a lot of people, if there are 60 plus, um, will remember that. And we were trying to bring 
equality for women then. Mm. And 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 the whole mantra, it was a saying, you know, girls can do anything. It was very much pushed on TV, um, in magazines and, and everything. It was the beginning of the days of, of real feminism mm-hmm. uh, that, that really hit hard in the 70s. So as a teenager, I grew up with magazines like Cosmopolitan and Cleo, and it taught you how to be an independent, sassy woman. Um, mm. And that's what we thought it meant and that we were on a pretty equal footing with men. And and our society was a lot calmer then um, than it is now. So, again, I grew up in that time. I grew up in the, in the days of, of, of women's lib when it was really starting to get going. I grew up in the days of um, homosexual law reform to decriminalise homosexuality and to let gay people live their lives as they saw fit and, and in freedom in New Zealand. So I went through those upheavals. But it seems the further we've gone along in time, the worse these issues have got. And, and they seem to be driven by this insidious um, United Nations agenda. Mm. You know, so so women, you know, women have always done remarkable things Um when our men went to war, it was the women who ran farms. We weren't exactly little snowflakes um, who couldn't do anything. And, and women have always been in the workforce in in one way or another. And I actually think getting all these women into the workforce is just to garner more tax, quite frankly. I'm quite cynical about it. I was yeah. speaking to Don Nicholson, uh, I think a couple of days ago, on something similar. And he mentioned to me, he says, just read, I don't want to, you know, sound like and uh, an old sod here. But he says in those days of his younger days, he says, in a family, the mother could stay at home. And on one income, you could have a roof over your head, decent meals on the table and could even afford an occasional holiday. And today we seem to have both parents working and yet still struggling. Yes, and that was the American the American dream too was to have a chicken in the pot and, and a car in the garage. Mm. You know, and, and that was very much the middle class dream. And New Zealand had achieved that in, in many ways. We still had pockets of poverty, but you will never get rid of it. Um to be fair too, there were some things that weren't quite openly spoken about. So if there sure. were problems, maybe you know, we wouldn't have known, and now every problem gets brought to the fore. But we could, on on a single wage, you could buy a house, have a car, a- and have six kids running around. Um, yep. But, of course, now you can't do that because you need to have a car seat for every child, and, you know, the, the problems compound, things are more expensive. Um, so those large families on, on big sections are, are long gone. Yeah. You know, well, and that was the New Zealand I, I grew up in. It was a it was a pretty cool place actually. So these SDGs are not, you know, I mean they are universal, but they're affecting different countries in, in different ways. Not talking about the homeland in India. So as everyone knows, most listeners would know I come from an army family in India. And the Indian Army is believe it or not, nearly the population of Auckland, nearly uh, one point five million strong. And women, till about two years ago, which is when I have been able to find the official figures for, women were less than 1% of the Indian Army. Yet, 
earlier this year the government and the government suggested something really strange they said because we seem to make a big song and dance in india about uh, the republic day and you have india's military might on display in new delhi for the world to see and different contingents from different battalions march past this year they are saying uh, for the year coming january 2024 they say it, it should be le- having just women just have a listen to this the parade could feature only women participants from the marching contingents and bands to the tableau and performances government sources have said on sunday in a radical shake up that is bound to make a statement the decision part of a larger effort to promote female representation and empowerment in the military and other sectors has been conveyed to the armed forces and government departments and its implementation is being worked out reportedly a note sent in march to the forces and other stakeholders involved in the organization of the annual parade which takes place at uh, what is now known as the kartavya path formerly known as rajpath in new delhi on the 26th of january had announced the plan ndtv has launched so they've decided that india to make a statement to tick off these sdgs need to needs to exclude nearly 99% of its armed forces by having just women in that republic day parade i saw something similar you know being pushed or you know just being promoted not being pushed because we had a women in aviation month in new zealand in february or march this year and there was all these write ups about a trans tasman flight being uh, manned entirely by a female crew everyone from the stewards to the pilot to the co-pilot everyone ground crew was women why do we feel this is needed that would be my question i mean where that would that's what i would ask be it the india statement that you know let's exclude 99% of the indian army or be it the fact that it's an all women crew in the air new zealand flight the point is do women need to do this to prove their worth this is a country that was the first in the world to give women the right the vote to vote jill well you know are we you know we've been a little bit precious about this because israel's army like when everybody leaves school everybody goes and does two years of military training so most of the women in israel go into the army at mm. some stage and they're not crowing about it you mm. know and and they need to do that because they're a very small country and they need to protect their border um so you know we've been a little bit safe and a little bit precious about everything we're doing instead of looking at, at actually how our lives work out you know and, and pan out i mean we obviously haven't got enough to worry about if this is <laughs> if this is the biggest thing we've got to worry about but you know and, when you when you look at this though it's to end all forms of discrimination but it's going to be things like these all female crews and these all female army marching and the all female this and the all female that that actually starts to grow that discrimination because it leads to resentment in our boys and our, our men mm mm exactly and i actually you know india for india to have all women contingent leave aside the fact that they are going to leave exclude 99% of uh, the actual armed forces if only that virtue signaling 
was more than what we just see, you know, a, a public show of ticking off the UN SDGs. What's actually very prevalent in India is sexual exploitation in certain categories, and no one seems to do anything about it. At the same time, when Indian government is crowing about the fact that, yeah, next year, watch out, World Indian Republic Day Parade, we have these group of Indian wrestlers, top achieving world-class wrestlers, who have been accusing their coach of asking for, you know, sexual favors, sexual exploitation for months, months in New Delhi. Nothing happens. Absolutely nothing happens. I think the head of the sports governing body resign or be removed with accusations of sexual harassment. But after months of the investigations going nowhere, women are now camping out and protesting in the street with growing public support. CNN's Vedika Sood has the story. They're up just after dawn, emerging from tents on a dusty roadside in the heart of New Delhi. Quickly, their makeshift home becomes a training ground. These women are celebrated athletes. They've held this protest vigil day and night for over a week. Their fight could bring a MeToo reckoning for Indian sport. And this is actually what I'm talking about. If you are actually going to talk about women's empowerment, we might actually start putting the you know perpetrators in jail, but that doesn't happen. And this is where Jill and I have often spoken about that how these SDGs are nothing more than virtue signaling and ticking off certain boxes for our leaders to have an immaculate uh, United Nations uh, scorecard. You know, and and is this are these are these being used as wrecking balls? Because you you know you look at you look at the New Zealand I grew up in, and what India would have been at that same time. And, mm. and we had a very, you know India's got a very specific, it's got very specific cultural and and religious pockets to it. Yeah. Um. And, and is this a, a complete wrecking ball to smash to completely smash the system? You know, and and is is India susceptible to it, and yet they don't use the same standards and goals in like Middle Eastern countries or um, countries that have a harder-lined religious backing to them. That you know, we we're not going into Saudi Arabia or the UN's not going into Saudi Arabia um, to to push the this gender equality because women there have a, have a different role in life. So, yep. you know, is it being used as a wrecking ball breakdown cultural barrier to, to bring us all into a one uniform world? Yet, and Jill, I, I completely agree. What is easily, you know, just passed, passed around here without anyone raising an eyebrow would absolutely get radicals out in the streets in Delhi or the Middle East and we, you know, there's no problem there for the UN. I will go back to the People's Report again on SDG 5 because it goes on this report to talk about the fact that SDG 5 is incomplete. It says SDG 5 fails to recognize gender diversity and fluidity including the LGBTQIA++ community. The government needs to implement recommendations from the Universal Periodic Review, including explicit prohibition of discrimination against transgender people in the Human Rights Act. Legislation is needed to enable people across the gender spectrum to be who they are 
and continue to express their identity and enjoy equal opportunity without discrimination. So this is what they are telling a country where marriage equality has been there. No one raises an eyebrow. I mean, very honestly, I come from a place that I don't really care what you do in your bedroom. You know, I if I meet people at work, I meet them just for work. I do not look into their ethnicity, their background, their cultural norms, their religion. None of that matters to me. I go to work. I just go to work. But it seems there's this whole thing about bringing your whole self to work. What does that even mean, bringing your whole self to work? Wasn't, weren't you just supposed to go do a hard day's job for, you know, and just go home? That, that was it. Your home is where you would express everything. Now, suddenly, nothing is sacrosanct. I, regardless of what I was, you know, straight, queer, whatever the spectrum is, I would never be an exhibitionist. And most of, I don't know many, but the handful of gay people I do know, or sexually diverse, they are not exhibitionists, Jill. They are not. No, although it can be a very flamboyant culture. So, yes, yeah, so, um, you know, we've got all parts of our cultures that are, that are quite flamboyant and the, the, the gay trans gender culture can be very flamboyant um but bringing your whole self to work i mean for most of us we should leave 70 percent of us at home and just take our, our working brains to work and and leave everything else behind but we don't seem to be able to do that now we've got to promote who we are and why we're so special um mm. and it irritates me a little bit or irritates me a lot i've worked in male dominated jobs nearly all my life um and you get the odd lippy bloke, but yep. you deal with them because you you need to. Mm. You know, you need to learn to get over it instead of melting down. And I don't feel that I have been discriminated against because I'm a woman. Mm. Um, I don't feel that I've had a harder time because I'm a woman. Um, and I don't feel that I've had to prove myself harder because I've, I'm a woman. It It also means that it is being implied that anyone who is say, causing trouble for you at work, is going to be a male. Well, what about women inflicting grief? Well, <laughs> well, that's true. And I had never worked with so many women as what I did when I first came down to the South Island. And I was shocked at how horrible they are. But what really annoys me is that I need my government, or there's a, there's a need for government to step up and, and go in and bat for me. And I don't need my government to bat for me. I don't need for them to make my workplace a safe place or to to pass laws to make sure that I'm not discriminated again against, you know. And this personal responsibility comes with this, and that's what the SDGs take away from everybody's personal responsibility. Yeah. And now let's go to a bit of following the money and seeing where the corporate bit comes into this. Because we have come to a stage, listeners, regardless of, uh, you know, which way you're inclined, I, I really couldn't care less about people's sexualities. As long as, you know, we relate on any issue, a particular matter, or we are just able to have a civil debate, that is all that matters. But the People's Report now talks about the fact that New Zealand needs to do more, like uh, have global women or women on boards, companies 
Deloitte had a study in 2017 that said only 40% of businesses have a gender policy. Only 26 measured how well they were doing on their gender policy. Only 7% businesses have dedicated budget to develop or execute their diversity and inclusion policy. New Zealand men are not being encouraged to take parental leave. This, all of this, is businesses now ticking off ESG or DEI, regardless, you know, depends what you think of it. DEI is the whole diversity, equity, and inclusion bit, or ESG is your environmental, social, and governance factors. All of these basically are telling a business, we don't care about your core competencies or your bottom line. You need to do this fluffy stuff. And just like Jill said, I do not want my government looking after my well-being. You can, as long as you can just manage our economy, provide us decent roads. Thank you. I'm a grown adult woman. I can take care of myself. There is the Human Rights Act, which over the last three years showed us is not worth the paper it's written on. That is supposed to protect me against gender-based discrimination. And I'll use that, thank you very much, if I can find an honest judge or judiciary in this land. But other than that, all of this is putting businesses into financial straitjackets, ultimately. We had NZ Steel talk about 40-40-20 ratio, men, women, and remaining being gender diverse or any gender. We have companies now reporting on their ethnicities and how many women and breaking the glass barrier and all of this. I will also say for myself, personally, I'm not speaking for you, Jill, but there have been breaks in career that I have taken very willingly, put my career on the back burner, re you know, restarted it later on, as and when my family, at times my parents in India needed me, I have done that. And I'm actually grateful to have the luxury of being able to do that because my man held a steady job down, paying the bill, bills. Now, this report is talking about the fact that women lose benefits and throughout their lives, there's a gender pay gap remains a major barrier for women. This contributes to lower savings, less security, all of this as far as I'm concerned, is poppycock. Many of this, these issues that they point out are things that I have very willingly done because I put family ahead of everything. PC families, the, and this is with um, the goals. So these goals really are the ultimate of the, of the ESGs, of the environmental, um, social and governance. And, and so these 17 sustainable development goals encompass this is actually what the ESGs are all about. But nowhere does it take into account human emotion, mm. you know, and, and what we do as, as good, decent human beings. So, okay, I was in a fortunate position where I could be an at-home mum, but I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. And I, and even though, you know, I had a, a pretty long, a pretty long youth, if you want to put it like that, and I didn't have my first child until I was 35. So, but I was ready to be at home and be a mum because that was my role as a woman. My role as a woman. Not every woman's role, but it was my role as a woman. And and I don't I don't feel that anybody looked down on me because of that. Mm. Um I you know, my husband and I had got a good relationship. Um, we've brought up a family in a traditional manner. 
And I don't feel that I've lost anything or that my government didn't look after me. You know, so yep. so all of these problems come about, um, they're non-problems that are suddenly made into a huge problem. Right. And I think now, listeners, we have sort of, you know, Jill and I, I think we've thrashed Jill the women's lib part here. I think it's now time <laughs> to move on to the part two that they had talk of, saying that SDG 5 doesn't go far enough into the into protections of the LGBTQIA community. And yet again, it is United Nations, World Economic Forum, and all of these bringing this down. We have activists like Shani Lal, you know, them of the yes. Posey Parker um, issue when uh, she was down here, Kelly Jakin, and the whole, I, I would say it was straight phobia at that time. Homophobia turned on its head. And not letting the lady speak because you are shutting an individual down and you get awarded Kiwi Bank, New Zealander of the Year. Shanil was also responsible for spearheading the end of the conversion uh, bill, you know, no more praying the gay away, which I do not agree with at all. But my point at that time was where is the need for this bill when uh, OIA? Two, the Human Rights Commission showed that in the two decades preceding this, there was no sign of a complaint that this was actually happening. It might be happening somewhere, but it was obviously not under the you know scrutiny by the Human Rights Commission. But there we had, we created an activist, we put them on the highest podium, we have now held them up an example to New Zealanders, someone who openly promoted violence against a woman trying to speak, Someone who uses the term turf. And turf is a word I came to know last year because there was this questionnaire sent to me standing for the local body elections that would you allow council premises to be used for turf events? So I googled turf and I'm showing my age here. It means trans excluding radical feminists. So we have seen that speak up for women has been shut out of events. We have gender self-ID now, so you can choose to identify as anything. We never seem so, to hear about the fact, Jill, sorry, Scotland, you've had men in women's prisons claiming they are women, a rapist then being allowed to go to the women's wing, raping again. The Scottish Prime Minister, she resigned over the whole fiasco. It didn't make any waves here in the media. So when you when you talk about a turf, so this is also the um, I do know that a lot of the lesbian groups are getting very upset because they're being gate crashed by um, by men, mm. and you know a, a lot of a lot of the lesbian groups were more of the radical feminists. Yeah, a and and I don't I don't blame them because they do not want their their um, they don't want their parade taken over. You know, with, with transgender. Um, you know, they fought to be away from men, and now suddenly they they're having to accept them again. But the interesting thing too with this SDG is target five point two is eliminate all forms of violence. Yeah, you know. So so how does how does that happen when you when you're setting groups up against each other? It, you know, nobody nobody got really upset with what happened with Posey Parker. Um, and that certainly isn't eliminating all forms of violence. It just makes violence 
okay from one group. And it, do- it happens because it's openly cordoned because our Prime Minister was the one who said at the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation that hosted the UN Goalkeepers Conference that we, New Zealand, will be the first country in the world to put the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals into its very legislation. And that's exactly yes. what you're doing. I'd like you to listen to this clip. From 2022, Davos World Economic Forum Conference on Gender Equality. Please be with me. Visible LGBTQI civil society organization. We work with news, business, entertainment, faith leaders, sports, governments, and individual activists from around the globe to ensure and educate public people on LGBTQ issues and move policy forward. I've been running GLAAD for eight years now, and prior to that, I was a media executive at Time, Inc. in the United States and Condé Nast. I'm also married to my wife, Kristen, and we have twin 13-year-olds that we're raising. That's another full-time job. Um, But today, I'm really proud to sit on WEF's Power of Media Task Force, and GLAAD is a very proud partner of the Partnership for Global LGBTQI Equality, which is also known as PGLE. And PGLE was launched right here in 2019 and is a project of WEF and the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. I think we've heard enough there. This lady speaking was Sarah Kate Ellis. She is the CEO of GLAAD. Glad spelled with a double A. That's the world's largest lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer media advocacy organization. And she was talking about the fact that WEF, World Economic Forum, and UN and them are all working together in partnership to stop violence against the LGBTQIA and whatever the spectrum has. Well, I have no problem with that. But when will you stop, number one, actually making women unsafe by putting men in women's places, spaces? And number two, which is my bigger, bigger grudge here, when will you make it age appropriate? Who is pushing these drag, uh, drag queen story timers? Where is the age appropriateness in having five, six, seven, eight year olds exposed to this? Because They keep saying, oh, it's about acceptance. All right. It is about acceptance of people of a certain sexuality. But I don't want my five-year-old knowing about sexuality. And that's what you're talking about here, because they'll be perfectly fine with everything. But you think that's appropriate to push this through, this narrative, at such an early age. We also have Family Planning New Zealand, which pushes the gender and sexuality resources RSC curriculum in schools. Now, looking through their financial statements of uh, the New Zealand Family Planning Organization, there is money flowing in between them and United Nations between, you know, if you look at the 2022-2021 financial statements, they are talking of getting grants or giving grants to the UNFPA, Union uh, United Nations Family Planning Organization, and the IPPF, that's the International Planned Parenthood Foundation. 
if I look at the International Planned Parenthood Foundation, I open the page for the Arab world. There's a woman in a burqa. I open the page for India. There's uh, women and the talk of, you know, helping them with breastfeeding and reducing maternal mortality after childbirth. Then I open the page for Oceania. It is, opens up with the gay flag, pride flag, and says how far we've come. So is that what family planning has been morphed into? And all thanks to these unelected, unaccountable folks at the United Nations and WEF, and not one of a politician. Jill seems to think it's wrong. None of them national act. We have had, uh, you know, complete reversals of statements from even national here. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, when I, when you start looking into this, um, when you find out how many international organizations there are um, for transgender equality, transgender law center, um, there's mermaids, there's transgender health center, the Trevor Project, Transgender Europe, it goes on and on and on. And it's such a huge, it now encompasses almost everything. And and really the only winners out of this, I think this is a personal opinion, um, are the global drug companies, the, the big pharma. Yeah. You know, and, and the losers are, are our children. One thing I, I, and this is me just because I'm a bit straight, um, <laughs> with straight speaking with, with language, the people who are reading to preschool children in libraries are, are not transgender, they're transvestites. And, right. and we need to use the right language. Um, and a trans, transvestite is a person who dresses up as the opposite sex and they get a sexual thrill out of that. Mm. And men who dress up as, as women, m most of them, especially the more flamboyant of them, it, this is a sexual thing. It's not just because they like pretty makeup and, and rainbows and unicorns, which, by the way, flooded our shops a few years ago. Everything, everything in kids to, promoted to kids was suddenly rainbows and unicorns. You know, and, and and that's very much of the transvestite um, show. That's that's what they're showing. But so, and a lot of this all stems back from um, 2019. So in 2019, this got to be a massive push, massive. So mm. there was obviously a global movement being pushed 2019 um, through to now. I mean, Jill, even looking at who's the author of this report, the People's Report on the STDZ, is Dr. Gillian Greer. In 1998, Dr. Gillian Greer was appointed the chief executive of Family Planning New Zealand. So that's what, nearly, you know, 25 years ago. In 2006, Dr. Gillian Greer was appointed the director general of the International Planned Parenthood Federation that I just spoke about. That seems to have very close ties. It reflects in the financial statements of the New Zealand Family Planning uh, Organization. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation funds the International Planned Parenthood uh, Federation. So all of these are so intrinsically linked. And by chance, this document that Jill and I, uh, you know, thrash out the SEDs from is also written by somebody who was on this Planned Parenthood Foundation. How can you have a case? Because uh, I think, was it USA where they were talking recently about, uh, you know, Gen Z, nearly 40% of them now identify as LGBTQ. How did that happen? 
Well, exactly. How how did that happen and, and who does the identifying? Um, I think in New Zealand too, our, our rates have gone up by 6%. Um, yep. as for people, just New Zealand kids. So the Gen Z thing, that's 18 to 34 years old. So we, we're obviously, I, I, it probably happened through taking fathers out of homes and take putting mothers into work, you know, and, and that's that was probably the thin end of, of, of a very big wedge. So looking at and the so, US statistics, they have this website called Statistica, and this is just the US generation. Um people identifying as uh, sexually diverse were less than 5% right up to, for the older generation, you know, 1945 and earlier, it, they still are less than, less than in fact, 2%. Then you have Gen X born before 1980. They are also below 5%. Baby boomers, they're all, all of this genera- these three generations are below 5%. And then you have the millennials that are born before 96, between 80 and 96, around 12%. And then you have your Generation Z, kids born between 1997 and 2004. 25%. Yeah, social media. Social media's got to, and TikTok is poisonous. TikTok is a, is a is a, is a dangerous Chinese spy app that, that encourages kids to do all sorts of things. Um, seriously, if you're a parent and you're, you're child under the age of 34 has got TikTok ban it. <laughs> I mean, I, I can tell you, and I don't know statistics, I'm talking out of the top of my hat. I can tell you that TikTok, uh, it's, a, it's a Chinese application. Regardless of whatever you see here in the West, China's own citizens would not be seeing. Their algorithms yeah. will be altered to make them see something deemed patriotic. At the same time, when we are turning our children into activists, be it climate activists, social justice, colonialism, gay rights, and all of that, China is still going on on maths and science, and we have slipped nearly 15 places in OECD in our education rankings. And uh, the number of references now, referrals for uh, puberty blockers and gender dysphoria have gone through the roof. I think we need to do much, much better by our children. I, as a mother, my kids are still, you know, in single digit uh, ages, six and eight. I don't care what they identify as. Their mom will support them no matter what they choose to identify as. All I ask is that make it age appropriate. I do not want a five-year-old, six-year-old, eight-year-old, ten-year-old, anyone being exposed to this that earlier. Kids, they're like a blank sheet. It is so easy, and the commies have always gone after the children. Always, they, they are too. And it's interesting because China, China is also building manly men, <laughs> which is very interesting. And again, too, this comes to war. You know, we're we're in all sorts of war, and it, it'll end in physical war. But China has now um, they are really abolishing and looking down on the more effeminate men, like the K-pop groups, the Korean pop groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they they're building manly men, but one thing you know, Jasper, just again from my own life experience, just um, this equality for for women and, and protecting women. So the United Nations is very good at this. They for women to have equality, they must be educated. So the first time I was in Mongolia, 
families mm. lived in family unit units, you know, and and that's what they did. The second time I went back, all the girls were gone. And the girls to educate girls, they take the girls away from the home. And these these homes are girls on, on you know endless acres in the middle of nowhere. Um and there's no mod cons. It's a, it's a really hard life. Mm. So they get taken away from home to be educated and they go into the nearest of one of two big towns um, where they have TV, access to running water. Um, they have shops. Um, you know, they live a, a primitive modern life, but they don't want to go back to the life on the steps because it's hard. And they're mm. universally educated and they can get a job. So what happens there is the boys then can't get a wife. There's no girls around. So they go to the cities to look for the girls. And they've got no skills, so a lot of them fall into poverty and, and alcoholism. And then it gets too hard for mum and dad, so they walk off the land as well. Yep. And then the mining companies come in. And that's happening to all these Indigenous peoples around the world. Um, to bring equality for women, they take the girls away. The boys I mean, follow, parents leave. From my own you know, background in India, the best thing you could do for gender equality, I mean, other than putting anyone accused of uh, sexual harassment, I mean, take some action there rather than these women wrestlers of India, top athletes sleeping on the streets in New Delhi protesting against this coach, Stop uh, gender ID. When I say gender ID in uh, births and, you know, pregnancies, because many of those countries, both in Africa and Asia, not just India, Pakistan, but yeah, pretty much the whole of Asia, I would say, right up to the Middle East, there is a huge amount of, uh, you know, subterfuge that happens when people want to know the gender. They want to know the gender and there's a preference. They know in certain societies or males just get them stopped. But that doesn't happen. And yet we can wax lyrical about all of this. But Jill, our time is nearly up. And I would, before we go, like you to reflect. You had mentioned to me about a certain mayor whose life you used as an example of how far we've actually come on LGBTQ rights. Maybe it would be good to have a quick oh. refresher on that one. Georgina Byer. So Georgina Byer was, um, she was the mayor of Carterton. I will call her a she. Mm -hmm. um, Georgina was a transgender person and, and her life had been, her, her early life was, was terrible. She couldn't find her feet in her society. She came from a bit of an impoverished background and, and was open to, because of her sexual choices, she was open to, to violence. And this this person became a well-respected elected official um, and virtually nobody blinked an eye. I mean, I can't remember anybody, you know, marching with torches and pitchforks and, and all the rest of it. She was very much accepted um, within our society. And I think New Zealand's done incredibly well with being really inclusive because we're small. Yeah. Um, and, and, and this was nearly 30 years ago in the 90s. Was, yeah, was it in the 90s? Uh, or I 20, 20, 20 years ago. 20 years ago, yeah. 20, 25, yeah, around that time. Yeah. So, uh, and she was an amazingly open and, and gracious person. Yeah. And, you know, and she fought for everything she she got. And that's how you get equality is you, you fight for it. 
you know, if you're going to be a whining little bitch, nobody's going to respect you and you're certainly not going to be equal. I, I know. And this was, Georgina was in office till 1999. So that was nearly a quarter of a century ago. Wikipedia entry says Bio was the world's first openly transgender mayor and the first openly transgender member of parliament. And good on her, bloody good on her. Mm. It's Sadly, Georgina's passed on the 6th of March this year. God bless her soul. Right. But her life just goes to show you're not nearly as bad as United Nations would have us think we are, that 25 years after having an MP, a mayor, openly transgender, over 100 years after being the first country in the world to give women the right to vote, we now need 60. We now need 60 changes in policies, 60 recommendations from the United Nations. I think not. And we, and we need a wet behind the ears child like like um, Shalil, whatever, um, you know, to tell us what to do. We've, we've had some bright, sophisticated people. Yeah, absolutely. So that was Jill and me thrashing out SDG 5, gender equality and its repercussions. Let us know what you think. My number is 2057 or email us at inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Bookies and brickbats all open. We are nothing if not open to cr- critique and criticism. Thank you so much for listening in and have a great day, whatever you do. Goodbye. Bye. Have a great day. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwash on RCR, Reality Check Radio.